All right, good morning, North Coast. So good to be with you. The Springboks are winning. Life is good. It is nice to be here today. And Father, I just pray you anoint me and you help me get this point into hearts. And God, you do something special in hearts. As I, as I speak, bring hope, I pray. Amen. So um, I was doing a wedding the last weekend, and uh, it was one of those weddings where the bride and groom are such beautifully innocent people. You know, you, you look at some people and you just go, oh, this is so good. And I, I was looking at this couple and I was just going, this is so good. And, and she walked down the aisle, she's looking stunning, and then her dad knocked the veil off her head. But she was still looking stunning. It was like Oki's moment, and, and uh, he was looking okay. And, and I, was, I was going through th- this wedding, and I was thinking to myself, how do I tell them what's coming? Because, I mean, marriage is easy. Is it just a walk in the park, like no problems? And, and I'm thinking to myself, how do I tell them that, that they're either going to hit a one-year bump, or they're going to hit a seven-year itch, or they're going to hit, as Aaron says, 14-year scavies, or, or like stuff's going to happen, and, and if they can just stick it through, they'll make it, and it'll be beautiful. How do you tell people that? Because this is what I found in, in marriage especially, is we think, it's, it's very funny how we think that we should get marriage right off the bat. I mean, it's a bit ridiculous. My, my final thought on marriage, I've, I've come to the place where I actually think that marriage will be good probably 20 years in. And I look back at marriage, and because and I, I went through the seven-year itch. that was a bit like scabies. And, uh, and we, we went through that. And, and I think about the joy and delight that I have in my marriage now. Literally, I, I am the fruit of my marriage, like I boast about. I, I love our marriage. It is beautiful. But to get there, there's a little bit of wobble. And so this is what I'm thinking about as I... <laughs> there we go. Yeah, she shouldn't have laughed that loud. But anyway, uh, I'm thinking about telling this couple that they're going to go through a wobble. And, and I want to say to them, so much of the kingdom of God is about just putting one foot in front of the other and not giving up. Today I want to talk about not giving up. I'm going to take Romans 4. I'm going I'm to really open it up. Um, and in order to do that, I need to, uh, to kind of explain one, two, and three, and then and I'm going to do that really quickly. I need four volunteers, so if, if you can come fast, it'll be helpful. Uh, uh, thank you, thank you. Okay, that's, we're two down, thank you. There we go. Oh, I love it. I love it when a lady comes to make the room look better. Okay, so, so here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to quickly explain Romans one, two, and three, and yeah, you can keep coming. And um, there's a chair for you, and we're going to put the lady on. Are you comfortable on the stool? Because then I can make you the judge, <laughs> which is appropriate. There we go. Okay, you guys can sit on your on your stools. Sorry, Bree, you're in the front. Okay, there we go. There we go. Okay, so can you see through these things? Yeah, if you move your heads around, okay, cool. Okay, so so here's the deal. Romans 1, 2, and 3 are basically there to deal with these three men. It's like Paul is the prosecutor, and he's coming before each of these men with his making his case to the judge, to God, to kind of show that they need Jesus. So he, he comes 
to the heathen man first, and we've got some scriptures, Romans 1, 18, 19, somewhere there. He says, but God chooses anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he's made it obvious to them. We're going to talk about how he's made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky through everything God made. They can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. So what he, he does is he comes to the heathen who goes, don't really believe there is a God, like eat, drink, tomorrow you die. And, and he goes, you know there is a God. And here's how you know. He, he, you know, the philosophers use these three arguments. One, you've got a conscience. Consciences can't evolve. In the fittest survive, consciences don't just happen. So that's the first reason. Then if, you, if you're getting into arguments with your kids, you can go, there's a teleological reason. Wake up, kid. There's a teleological reason. Okay, what that means is there's a design reason. So if you see intelligent pattern in creation around you, then you've got to fathom that intelligent pattern or intelligent systems or intelligent processes are the result of an intelligent designer who designed them. Second reason. Then there's an ontological reason. Okay, just throwing out big words make you think I'm clever. Okay, an ontological reason is a reason in existence. So, for example, hunger exists. Why? So that we will eat and not perish. Um, the thirst exists so that we will drink. A desire for sex exists so that we will reproduce. And wherever you go in the world, you will see people worshiping. A desire to worship exists in people. Why? God designed it and put it there. So Paul comes hard against the heathen man, and he basically goes, you can't hide behind your, I don't know God, there's no such thing as God, well, maybe one day. You've got to get, you need Jesus, is what he does. Then he goes after, he goes after the moral man, actually, next. And, um, and let's go to the scripture, it's in 21. Going to the scripture Almost at the scripture. Just do the next scripture. No scripture. Okay, we'll, we'll read. I've got it. Yeah, there we go. Romans one twenty one. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. What the moral man does is he says, he says, you know what? I'm not that bad. Compared to that I, I'm actually a good And if God was... If God's really good, then, then he'll be good to me because I'm actually quite moral. And you've all met the moral man. You've had the conversation with the moral man who, who's, who kind of goes, I'm, I'm a good person. I don't deserve hell. I don't deserve stuff. And, and what Paul says to them is, you're making up who you want God to be. And God doesn't fit into your pattern. And if you make up who you think God should be, then what you'll do is you will end up worshiping idols which is, is the progression. I won't take you through the whole progression, but here's the thinking. God is not like us. He is completely holy and completely righteous, and you can't sneak away with, I do more good than I do bad, so therefore I'm a good person, because God goes 100% or nothing. You need Jesus. Then Romans 2 and, and three goes hard after the religious man, and, and Paul basically goes, you keep telling everybody that you've got the law and you think you've got everything right. But here's the deal. If you don't follow the things that you say 100% of the time, you're fallen. 
And then he says, and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And all need Jesus. This is Romans 1, 2, and 3 in a snap. Okay, why don't you give them a hand for being so wonderful. I need two of you to stay. You two are staying. You two. Thank you so much. Okay. I need the cardboard too. Don, you're on the stool. Steve, you're all three of these dudes. There we go. Okay. Ignore them for a little while. Um, okay. What I'm going to do t- today is I'm going to dive into Romans 4. Now, if you enjoy this message and you're like, really want to get into to Romans, I spoke about Romans 4 in the last series, last message, um, verses 1 to 9. And I don't often say this, but it's probably worth listening to that in the podcast. Where we're going to go today is from Romans 9, uh, 4 verse 9 to 13, which is all about circumcision. We're going to talk about your circumcision for the next 30 minutes. Uh, I'm joking. Okay, we are going to go into from 13 to the end. So here, let's get into it. I loved the discomfort that was growing every second of that word. Okay, verse 13. Clearly, God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants <clears throat> was based not on his obedience to God's law, but on a right relationship with God that comes by faith. So Paul's writing to a Roman church with a bunch of Jews, and he's helping the Jews fit into the Roman church, and he's helping the Romans handle the Jews. And and so he he writes and he says, it's kind of obvious that Abraham, understand the Jewish mind. In the Jewish mind, when, when they're talking about their ancestors or when they're talking about how they got to where they're at, they'll always go to Moses. Paul goes, no, no, let's go back to the beginning. And he goes, it's obvious that Abraham didn't receive the promises of God because he obeyed the law. To which they're going, I guess so, because there was no law to obey. In fact, there were only two commandments that that he was actually given. Go somewhere else, get circumcised. That That was all that he was told to do, and he obeyed both of them. So they go, so he's going, you... You can't look at this relationship with, with God that we have based on the law. This is how he's, he's starting. And then he goes on and he says, If God's promise is only for those who obey the law, then faith is not necessary and the promise is pointless. So understand this. You either have a relationship with God based on obeying the law. And if you want to have a relationship with God based on obeying the law, you have to obey all of it all the time to get his blessing. Okay, so that's one way of getting right with God. You just, the only problem with that is you have to be just like Jesus. The other way is by faith. And faith depends not on your striving to achieve. Faith depends on another's striving to achieve the law. Jesus, who gets it 100% right, and what faith does is it produces a humility in us because I can't do this, and a deep trust in the one who can, Jesus. So Paul's going, you can't have a little bit of this and a little bit of that. You either have this faith or you have law. You've got to choose. That's where he's going. And then he says, for the law brings punishment on those who try to obey it. The only way to avoid breaking the law is to have no law to break. 613 laws, if you don't get 613 right, 600 every day of the week, you get under punishment. So he says the only way to avoid breaking the law is to have no law to break. To which we go, how do you get no law to break? 
So glad you asked. So here's, here's what happens in Christ. You've got to hold them so that they can almost see them. Okay, there we go. Jesus, we're going to fail at this. Oh, that's brilliant. Jesus comes for all mankind. All mankind fits into that. And he goes, I will die and be punished by the judge for all mankind. Now, there exists a law called the law of double jeopardy. Anyone heard about the law of double jeopardy somewhere along the line? law of double jeopardy exists so that the state doesn't take out a person senselessly. So the law of double jeopardy says that once a person has been tried for a case, it can never be tried again, unless there are like a few loopholes. But, but basically, the reason for this is that, say, I was to accuse Sheldon of murdering Jess, and uh, I decided we'd keep her still alive for this metaphor. Um, and and what, what happened is he went to court, he was accused, and he was proved not guilty. And then, a few weeks later, Amy, who actually killed Jess, left the weapon that she used to, to kill Jess in Sheldon's garage. We found the weapon. I couldn't then put Sheldon back onto trial for murder again. Reason being, the law of double jeopardy would kick in, protecting him from being accused again and again and again for the same crime. Okay, that's how, that's how the state protects itself from going after people again and again and putting them in a state of jeopardy where they actually can't get on with their lives. The law of double jeopardy says that you can't be tried twice for the same crime. That law started way before the Roman era. It actually started in Deuteronomy 25. It starts way back in the Old Testament where God basically goes, you cannot be tried for the same thing twice. You cannot be tried in Jesus' body for your sin and be tried in your own body for your sin. Christians often don't get this. They think that Jesus died for their sin once for all, and then they're going to go to judgment and be tried again for their sin. You're not. You are judged once for all time in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ Jesus, you are no longer under judgment. It means that you are free and out from under the law. Now there is virtually no law which should terrify you. Okay. Off you go. Bye-bye. You are wonderful, incredible models. Thank you. Here's why it should terrify you. If there is no law over you, because if I break the law, it's okay, because Jesus got condemned anyway. What is keeping Christians on the straight and narrow? That should be the thinking process. Man, the Bible's so good. So this is, this is how it goes. So it says, so the promise is received by faith. It is given as a free gift. Now I'm going to answer the question. How, what drives our behavior? What keeps us from falling off the edge? The promise is received by faith. It is given as a free gift, and we are all certain to receive it, whether or not we live according to the law of Moses, if we have faith like Abraham's. For Abraham is the father of all who believe. So it says two things. It talks about two things. I'm going to link them. It talks about a promise that's received by faith, and promises should direct the Christian's life. And then he talks about 
you who believe are children of Abraham. So I want to start with this you who believe thing. If you believe in Jesus who died for your sin, you receive the DNA, the spiritual DNA of Abraham. If you get the DNA of someone, you get their inheritance. Okay? The inheritance is a bunch of blessings and promises from God. So the way to receive them is believe. You get an identity as a believer. Makes you a son of Abraham. You receive promises that by faith direct your life. Right. Now let me tell you how this plays out. This is going to go somewhere and we're going to get from your head to your heart. Okay, so stay with me. If you want to get, be a really fit person, you want to have a healthy lifestyle, you will look at someone who's really fit and you will, in looking at them, see the promise of a healthy lifestyle to have a body that looks like that. Okay? There's a promise. I will end up looking something like that. You will then start to practice, and the practice will be, I'll go to gym. And how that will begin is that you will find a gym buddy, and you'll say, hey, I want to go to gym, can I come with you? And he'll say, great, let's go to gym together, and you'll go to gym. You know what will happen after the first time you go to gym? Nothing. You'll be sore, and, but nothing will happen. The only evidence of you going to gym is how sore it is. And you, if you... If he's a good gym buddy, or she's a good gym buddy, she will drag you to gym the next time. And you'll go again. You know what the evidence will be? Nothing. More so. And then, and then you'll, you'll keep going. And if you keep going and keep going and keep going, one day you'll wake up and your gym buddy will, be, will go, I'm so sorry, I can't make it to gym today. I'm going to Joburg. And you will still go to gym. You know what's happened? A practice has become a habit. Okay, but you probably haven't seen too much change. But if you continue this practice, you continue this habit, one day, especially if you're a guy, you'll have this experience, you will one day look at yourself in the mirror and you'll go, how on earth does she resist me? <laughs> if you... <laughs> you're both slow and laughing too loud. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, I'll go back to gym. Okay. Uh, <laughs> stay with me, baby. Stay with me. If you keep going and keep going, you will one day wake up, and uh, and people around you will notice because you pick up. A 500 kg table with one hand, or, or you, you, people will see by the fact that you just ran 20 k's and you don't look like you're tired. They will start to go, Flip, that person's just like a fitness person. And you wake up, and going to gym won't be something you have to think about. You won't be going, Flip, I need to practice going to gym. I need that habit. Because what's happened is it's gone from a practice to a habit to a lifestyle that is informed by an identity. When you think of yourself, you will think of yourself as a fitness person. I'm just a fitness person. I don't have to think about whether I exercise or not. I'm just a fit person. It just shapes you. I just go surfing in the morning because I'm a surfer. It's just what surfers do. 
I wear slops and jeans because I'm a servant. This is just how we think. This is, this is what happens when a practice has informed a habit, which has informed a lifestyle. It then gets tied to your identity. And when it's tied to your identity, you never have to think about it again. Great place to be. I want to look at this the other way. So the other day, I'm, I'm moving from a house on the point to a house that we bought in Lucia. And um, as, as I'm to get moving... I call Luto, who's our youth pastor, and, and he gets Ndalo and, and Chris, who's like a comedian, and um, Kanye. And they come and help me move. Now, Chris is flipping funny. Like, he's honestly comedic funny the whole time. And so, there are four black guys, a white guy, and a Hilux. So, so he starts cracking jokes about four, four black guys, white guys, and a Hilux. And, and he, he, st- he starts with the guys driving past and what's going on in their mind. So, like, you've got to forgive me because this is a white guy making, making these jokes. I wish he was here. But, but he, he's, he, the, this Indian guy drives past, and, and he's looking at the Indian guy, and he goes, Hey, man, we need to help that white all and all. And, and then the, the next guy goes past, and he starts ripping off the Afrikaans accent. And then, and then he's like, Hey, boys, put your back into it. And like, he's, he's just going from one accent to the next to the next, and he's ripping off different people. And what I realized throughout this whole thing, in fact, he, he gets to like, towards the end, and the deal was, they help me move and I buy them KFC. And he says to me, you white toes are all the same. He says, you, you exploit us, but, but you exploit our weaknesses. You take us for KFC. And, then, and he says, because you know that KFC for a black guy is like sushi for a white guy. And anyway, so we, we go have KFC. You know, it's very funny, because I, I all get ordered that huge bucket of KFC. And so I'm sitting with them knowing this is going to be an enjoyable experience, but it takes forever. And so I get up. And so Lutz says to me, no, no, no. Ross, sit down, sit down, sit down. And I said to him, Lutz, just because I'm white, you think I'm going to go complain? Hey. And he says, absolutely. So anyway, I sat down. But we waited, waited, waited. When, when the KFC arrived, you know, most of us, you just want to get that stuff through your body as fast as you can because it's just basically oil and salt. Like it's um, gone. They took out that KFC, they, they put it perf- down perfectly. There was, a, like they'd been loud up until that moment. It was silence. Lutz, who's the most disorganized oak on the planet, he organizes it perfectly and then slowly starts to eat. And I realized, KFC is like sushi for waters. It's just amazing. Anyway, what I realized, this is going somewhere. If a guy's really funny like Chris, he'll never use the white Indian black He'll never use those words. He will just observe and speak out things that people do again and again and again, thought patterns, the way people are, the things that they're afraid of, the way they act. He will notice and generalize and bring them all together in such a way that he's describing patterns of action, and we all know exactly who he's talking about. If you can do that, you're basically a comedian. This is how comedians work. Here's what's really important. The early church was called believers. Before they came up with the idea of Christians, 
before anybody was called a Christian, they were called believers. For 10 years, it says in Acts chapter 1, the believers were together in the upper room. Acts chapter 2, that 3,000 believers were added to their number. Acts chapter 4, the believers were in one heart and mind. The identity of the Christians was believers. And the reason for that is because some guy, probably like Chris, was watching and going, every Saturday, those guys go to church, because it would have been Saturday, not Sunday. He would have said, Every time those guys had a problem, they go and pray. Every time there's an orphan, those guys adopt. Every time this thing happens, those guys act like this. They act like believers. Their identity had informed their lifestyle. You know what people should say of us? They should go, well, they, they always love. Because they're Believers, obviously. They always, when they hit trial, those are, they'll always praise and worship. Because obviously, they're believers. They, they just do out of who they are. What, what do I do on Sunday? I go to church. Why? Because I'm a believer. It's just what believers do. What I do when it comes to financial stress? I give. Why? Doesn't make any sense. Because I'm a believer. Because so generously in your reap. What, what do I do when I hit trials and tribulation? Praise God. Why? Because I'm a believer. And that's how believers act. If you understand your identity, you will start to become proud of it. And when you're proud of your identity, you'll start to regularly perform practices that will become habits that will reinforce your identity. And this cycle will happen until you wake up most days and you just have a quiet time because that's what I do because I'm a believer. It just shapes you. But most people give up. You ever been to gym on the first week of January? (laughs) Try to get a machine. Ever been three weeks later? You knew where that was going. You see, the thing about Christianity is you get a promise from God. I don't know if you remember the first time you felt like God put in your heart to start tithing. And then, and then God, it's like in the beginning, God's hiding behind every corner going, peekaboo. But then, but then over, over time, you have the sense that I must tithe. And now it's six months, and I just, where are you? Or, or you, you have this sense that God's saying to you, stay in your workspace. And now it's five years later, and you haven't been promoted. You, you get the promise, and the promise is beautiful, and in that moment you're so full of hope, but, but it's 10 years later, and though I had this promise and sense that I would get married, it's 10 years later, and I'm still single. It's in those spaces that people give up. And many of you have been given a promise by God. God puts something into your spirit and it's 10 or 15 years later or six months later. And many of you right now have either given up, feel like you're going to give up or you're going to leave. You're going to move out of this thing. And so many Christians come to me and they say, Ross, the Christianity thing doesn't work for me. And they leave. They leave churches, they leave marriages, they leave jobs, they leave callings, they leave because they've tried and tried and tried. And, and I held on to that promise and it was six months and I just couldn't hold on to it anymore. And I wanted that child and it's 10 years and I just can't hold on anymore. 
But Abraham, he gets something that flows out of a promise of God into a habit that becomes a pattern in his life that is, it blows up into something incredible. I want to say this. The thing that should absolutely define, direct, and shape your life are the promises of God. Just like a person trying to get fit should be shaped and defined and think about the promise of what it will look like to get fit. The problem with people is that between the promise, I'm fit and I have that body and all of that, and the pattern of going to gym is a process. And between the promise of this lifestyle of joy and this practice of being filled with the Holy Spirit is a nice long process of praise and thanksgiving. Between the promise of a living a life of peace and the practice of prayer is this whole long process of renewing your mind. And people give up in the process, but not Abe. Abraham said, had something, battery's flat, that I hope we've got this up here. Abraham some, had something that you really need to have. So Romans 4 verse, yeah, let's try that. <laughs> that is what the scriptures mean when God told him, I've made you the father of many nations. This happened because Abraham, who was a believer, believed in the God who brings the dead back to life and creates new things out of nothing. Some of you sitting here today, and God is going to bring the dead thing back to life inside of your spirit, and he's going to create. And some of you, there's an absolute vacuum. And today, when we end the service, God is going to breathe something out of nothing. Prepare your heart now, because this scripture was for you. Abraham believed in the God who brings the dead back to life and creates new things out of nothing. He's talking about Isaac. Even when there was no reason for hope, he was like 100, she was like 90 something, she'd been barren all her life. There was no reason for hope. This dude grows in his hope. Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. Next verse. For God had said to him, that's how many descendants you all have. And Abraham's faith did not weaken even though at about 100 years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger, and in this he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. So I looked at this verse, and I went, everybody I know, after so much time, gives up. Abraham, it's been 25 years since he got the promise, and his faith keeps growing. And I started going, that makes no sense. How does that happen? Then I started thinking about Abraham's life. He's a farmer. God gives him a promise of wealth. You know how that came about? He watched that bull get onto that car and produce that calf. You know what happened the next year? That bull got onto that car, produced that calf. It's like, how long is this going to take? Next year? Maybe there were two cars, three cars, okay, you're getting the picture, huh? especially Mia, she's got this picture down, one day Abraham wakes up, and he's got cattle for days, and he has seen the promise of God 
happen one moment after the next, after the next, after the next, after the next. See, Christians today believe that the process of Christianity is an event, but it's a process. Abraham was a farmer. He got it with his cattle. He got it with his sheep. He would have got it with, his, with, with planting seeds. He was nomadic, so he would have moved from one place to the other. You know what you do when you're a farmer? You keep seeds in your pocket. Sometimes those seeds stay in your pocket for six months. And then you take them out when you find some good soil and you put them in because you want that tree to be here too because you know that in two years you're coming back and you plant it and the only thing you can do is water and weed, water and weed, water and weed. And you know what you see? Nothing. (laughs) Because everything done in faith is concealed. But one day, by faith... You're watering and weeding, watering and weeding. One day, the sun will be just right, the temperature will be good, the moisture content will be good, and that seed will germinate. And you know what you'll see? Nothing. (laughs) And you'll walk around to the next spot, and then he would have come back two years later, and there would be a little plant. And everything in Abraham's life didn't work on McDonald's. It worked on a little plant, a little cow, a little bull, a little sheep. Everything was a process. And he would have watched the process and watched the process. And here's what Abraham would have known. If God gave me a process, a promise 25 years ago, there was a process. And today is one day closer to that promise coming about. And for some of you, you're stuck in habits and sin and brokenness. And here's what I want you to know. Today is one day closer to the promise coming about in your life. If God put a promise of purity into your life, there will be a process of it coming about. But you're one day closer, and the only thing you can do is water and weed, water and weed, water and weed. And if you keep watering with the Word of God and weeding out unbelief in your life, you will get closer and closer and closer. And one day, the promise of the Word of God that can never return to you void will germinate. And some of you have given up on the word germinating. And I want to tell you today that God still brings dead stuff back to life. And God still creates new stuff out of nothing. And there is something in your life that he wants to fan back into flame. And there is something in your life that you're going, this is utterly impossible. Well, you're one day closer. And you need to let the Spirit of God, as we wrap up today, you need to let the Spirit of God breathe into that thing inside of your heart and go, I am one day closer and I've still just got to weed out some unbelief and water it with the Word of God because God is going to bring this thing back to life. I want to pray for you. If I can ask Dion to come up. First pianist with a beanie on his head. That's amazing. (laughs) Why don't you stand? It's quite nice being in a small community. Because in a small community, you can actually cultivate hope and faith. And that's the season for this church. It's just to be in a community that just stirs and stirs the hope and faith. And right now, in this environment, God will bring the dead stuff back to life. So if you know what's dead in your life or what's just a void in your life and you want God to break through, physically react. Don't just, don't 
be that oath. Like lift up your hands and go, God, I need that thing. I need you to breathe into my life. Don't be proud. Just lift up your hand and go, I need it. I need it. Heavenly Father, I just pray right now that you bring the dead back to life. Dead dreams, dead hopes. God, dead aspects of people's minds, dead dead patterns, dead, just where there's death, Lord Jesus, I pray that you speak life, that you bring life, because we know that your word cannot return void. Lord, breathe on this community. And Holy Spirit, just begin to water and bring it to life. And Lord, I, I ask that where people have been bruised, Lord Jesus, and it's been shoved down, God, you can create something out of nothing. And I pray that you literally take their spirits and you, in one moment, you just break open their lives. Holy Spirit, resuscitate lives. And I pray right now that though they will not see it, they will know that one day closer to that word bearing fruit in their hearts, Jesus. We thank you for your grace in Jesus' name. Amen.